think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 104 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 105th episode. I'm Laura Carboneau. I'm Ethan Rainville. And uh, yeah, it's been a couple weeks since our last one. It's been a busy time, as it often has been over the last year. Uh, apologies, we would like to record more, but uh, it's just sometimes life gets in the way. Um, very few things have happened since last time. And I well, want to start you know, little... it's been three weeks at the start of a parliamentary session. Um, yes, things have happened. Things, things have happened. So we wanted to talk, first of all, about uh, some changes made to the conservative shadow cabinet. Um, which, first of all, I, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I, I always find it a bummer uh, that we don't... Like, if they're going to use shadow minister, like, they really should just go all the way and call the, the, the finance... The, you know, the shadow finance minister, the shadow chancellor, as the, uh, the British do. Shadow it's just chancellor a very, of the exchequer. It's just a very cool title. I, uh, I, was I, I'll be honest. I have no idea what an exchequer is. Uh, it's it's like it's the money place. Yeah, but is the that, word what it means, usable basically. in any other like scenario? I mean, it it just means like the treasury, basically. Okay, so it's like a that, that's a, all it really fe- means. A federal treasury. Yes. Well, I mean, it's not federal in the UK's case, but yes. Sure. You get it. Uh, but yeah, no. I, and at one point, the occupant of that position was, of course, uh, Ed Balls. Uh, during the Miliband leadership of the Labour Party, so you had Shadow Chancellor Balls, which is just sort of amusing. At any rate, uh, take us back to the CPC shuffle. I will let Etienne lead us off on that. Mm. Oh, you're you're very very much too kind. Um, so this news broke. What day are we? Wednesday. Um, we are Thursday, in fact. Oh, I was I was entirely prepared to lead off as if this had happened today. Um, but no, it actually happened yesterday, or was announced yesterday. Um, the news was broke by the CBC of all people, um, late on a Tuesday night, uh, like quite late. I think it was like 10 p.m. before it was uh, sort of reported. Maybe 9.30, who knows. Um, and the big headline news was that Pierre Polyev was being moved out of the finance uh, shadow minister role. Um, and that Ed Fast would be taking over. Um, and that's sort of all that was reported Tuesday night. And then Wednesday around noon was when the full list came out. So let's go over it uh, briefly. Um, of the two, Ed Fast took uh, finance uh, ac- across from Christia Freeland. Um, Pierre Polyev was moved to, I'm trying to find the title. It's I said, but it's not I said. It's yeah. sort of a reworked version of I said that doesn't mention science and instead mentions jobs. I can't actually find the title in front of me. I, I apologize. Uh, jobs and industry. There you um, go. I mean, yeah. As, as So long as this new article is quoting it directly. Um, and then the other ones... Um, of the other ones, I would note uh, James Cumming, who was the ISED critic, is being moved into COVID-19 also, economic recovery. Yeah, which is also kind of ISED. It's kind, It's a little bit of whatever. Kind of between ISED and finance. Yeah, it's, it's a just, whatever yeah. he wants it to be. It's, it's a pretty casual. A, a jack of all, all trades. Jack, that's not how that expression goes. Not yes, really, but I think people know what you mean. Um so James, James Cumming is a reasonably fresh MP who has moved up. Um, yeah, they let him take some of the the high in the batting order swings uh, yeah. during the we 
charity uh finance committee hearings for instance uh yeah. during the last summer so yeah he uh, yeah. he definitely got some some prime time early which is kind of odd for a a new prairie mp because i think typically yes. they like to showcase their folks that are not from the prairies because they have a lot of them in fact all but one in alberta and saskatchewan um so for someone to sort it much like how uh downtown toronto people have trouble advancing in the liberal party to some extent uh, it's just like they have an embarrassment of riches, and if you are the the median member from downtown Toronto in the Liberal Party, your chances of advancement are rather slim compared to being a you know Calgary MP, for instance, in the last Parliament. Um, so it is notable that someone from uh, from the heartland has uh, so quickly sort of taken a front bench role. Yeah, a new MP, and was I said um, is now being moved out of I said so that the let's say, the sort of number two of the party. Um, Pierre Polyev can take his role from him, essentially. Um, but he is g- being given a sort of wide-ranging and important role, nonetheless. Um, we can come back to that. Uh, Raquel Dancho, who's one of the sort of, I'll call them millennial caucus um, MPs. And also a new MP uh, and- from Manitoba. She beat out, um, oh God, her name is escaping me. Uh, the labor minister from the last government that didn't make it through the first year. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Mahaychuk, Marianne Mahaychuk. One of the very few people to seemingly be fired from the Trudeau government. The only person, in fact, so far, I think, from no. cabinet. Well, depends who you're counting. The Kirstie sure. Duncans of the world, I'm sure, would have words with you. Yeah, that's fair, but mid-government, though. Yes, worse, more brutally than anyone else in the history of the Trudeau government. Uh, yes. Um, so her title is now Future Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion. So the obvious uh, contrast there with um, Qualtro, Minister Qualtro at ESDC. Um, what's sort of interesting with some of these titles is they're not direct mirrors to um, federal portfolios in the way they were before. Um, or, or at least a little more so. They've never always been perfect mirrors because um, opposition leaders like to carve up the federal portfolios and add in ones of their own priority to sort of make up roles for shadow um, or for backbench MPs and others um, to give them something to do with associate portfolios, things that they feel the government isn't placing emphasis and they want to carve out. Um, you know, there's all sorts of options. But some of these are interesting, like the way that Pierre Polyev's role is not a direct reflection of, I was about to say Minister Baines's, but it would now be Minister Champagne's portfolio. Um, For instance, dropping the innovation word, a word that I guess perhaps we could see as being a big L liberal word associated with uh, ISED, and sort of foreshadows that if uh, O'Toole were ever to form government, it would probably return to be Industry Canada um, in reasonably short order. Mm-hmm. Um, of the others, a lot of them are actually first-term MPs. Um, Rachel Harder, yeah. I don't believe, is. Dane Lloyd, no, she was, uh, I think, is. He was, like, in a by-election during the last parliament. Yeah, John Nader, maybe. Uh, I vaguely remember him before, but I could be wrong. And Corey... Tucker, who was... Uh, I he was say spe- Tucker. It I is, yeah. He was speaker of the... He was Speaker of the Saskatchewan Legislature until uh, the last election and was elected to replace Brad Trost in Saskatoon University. Uh-huh. My old writing. 
that makes sense yes um so the overall framing i think the toronto star piece by alex uh Boutier. one of the one of the toronto star oh, yeah Alex's. one of them who knows who knows which one <laughs> they're um, both alex b's was right in that uh if you look over the portfolios a lot of the sort of the common denominator very quickly with the exception perhaps of rachel harder's role being digital government um and a few of a few are more incidental um, it's largely around economic focus, um, yep. but it's basically a rejigging of the economic well, yeah, and shadow critic portfolio. O'Toole was very clear that the whole point of it was that they're going to be focused on jobs, 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 jobs. So the headline of the shuffle was, I mean, the headline picked up by CBC and others was talking about the Pierre Polyev story. Um, and I think it's worth talking about the Pierre Polyev story very shortly, but I think what it has done is it underplays the Ed Fast story. So let me touch on yeah. the Pierre Polyev story first, and then we'll talk about the Ed Fast story. Um, Polyev is moving from finance, which is arguably the number two position, to I said, which is a, I would say, front bench, you know, a tier yeah, one so we, position. We've talked at length about this on a recent episode, uh, so <laughs> where, where industry is in the, the pecking order. Yes. Uh, but it, it, it's also the pecking order changes based on the party and the emphases that the parties put. And the government the, and the priorities. Yeah, and all the, sorts of the government's as we, as pecking we said order last is time. slightly different than <laughs> the conservative party pecking order. I'll give you just yes. an easy example of that. The There's something I refer to as like sword and shield portfolios or sword and shield issues. Yes. Um, environment you, which on the you did not bench is always uh. likely to be <laughs> more of a sword issue yes. um, on their benches and a higher tier one than it would be. Was that on an the Ian Brody? Benches. Ian Brodyism, or uh, it was one of those guys, one of the Harper era guys. They're, yeah, I don't know yeah. that I've ever seen. I forget which one it was. With anyone, but it's certainly been used throughout sort of conservative academic, not even academic, just conservative discourse period over the years. Um, is the sword and shield issues, but Brody, I think, certainly makes mention of it in uh, not governing from the center, but uh, whatever his response to governing, <laughs> whatever the book was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, one we promised a book review on, and uh, we both never did. And good we, book, but we never did a book review. Yeah, on. maybe we should do that like over the summer or something. Do a actually a get around to it. Book club um, that both combines the latest sci-fi books I've read with uh, Canadian politics books. I, I picked up Emmett's, Emmett McFarlane's book uh, the other day, so that's my. That's oh my yeah, the, the the tweeting professor himself. The, the, <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> I'm interested to see what his books have to say at the end. Yeah, after, well, maybe I'll after following the man on Twitter for five years, watching him just progressively work himself into a, a, a lather. <laughs> so wait, let me finish the Pierre Polyev. Yes, uh, absolutely. Go ahead. I'm not the, stopping the you. Pierre Polyev story. Um, so is it is it a demotion? Maybe you can see it as a demotion. Um, but is it a demotion of any substance? Does it really matter that if it's a demotion? All of that's really in the air. What I think fundamentally it is, is that Pierre Polyev um, fills a very specific niche in the Conservative Party. Um, and it's a niche he fills very well, uh, <laughs> which I would say is the liberal trigger in chief. Um, and for that, he is the member of Conservative Caucus uh, with perhaps the most profile, um, putting aside uh, the present leader and former leaders, uh, notably Andrew Scheer. Um, presently in the benches um, and has the most following on Twitter. Uh, sorry, not Twitter, but social media broadly. Let, let me just yeah. lump them all together. Um, the next runner up in that category would probably be uh, Michelle Rumpelgarner. 
um, yeah. who also has a very cultivated sort of independent base of power. Um, but really no one comes close to Pierre Polyev and how he's managed to establish himself. And I think we were on this podcast saying that if Pierre ran for leadership, um, which ultimately he pulled out at sort of the 11th hour, um, the odds of him winning were fairly great. I, I, I continue to believe he would have won convincingly. Yeah, I, I think that's likely to be the case. Yeah. Uh, so he's been moved, and I think it's easy to see why. If you're in Aaron O'Toole's camp and you're talking about rebranding the party and you're serious about that, every time you're not able to make the press conference, if Pierre Polyev is sort of the guy that's up there, it's it's a fairly sharp change in comp style in tone yes in everything like he wants to be like Aaron O'Toole wants to be down yourself yes Aaron O'Toole kind of wants to be above, above it like the stay puffed marshmallow man uh just serenely floating uh or at least serenely stomping and Pierre Polyev is more of a slimer kind of experience <laughs> thank you for these obscure <laughs> Ghostbuster references very, very obscure movie yes that, that no one understands and has seen I actually haven't seen Ghostbusters. Well, there you go. You, yeah. you but even then, I understand characterization. Reference, so. Yeah. Um, so, yes, a very different tone. So you want your number two and the person who's going to be filling in for you at, press con- at many press conferences. Yes, you, you don't necessarily want him to be an odious little slime goblin <laughs> who uh, just oozes everywhere. <laughs> to toe the same line. Um, yes. Which is where Ed Fast comes in. Ed Fast um, was the, at the end of the Harvard government, was the trade minister. Uh, Widely considered to be very effective, respected by the public service. Like, he was, uh, yeah, yeah, by all accounts, good at his job. soft-spoken guy. I can't think of any press conferences I've seen him in where he's sort of yelling or upset or angry. He is a reasonably uh, moderate, soft-spoken um, twice com- you said soft com- competent i don't i don't know <laughs> running on adjectives um you, you sure I, I think, are i think the people get what i mean yes and even keel aligns much more closely with the type of messaging that aaron o'toole is putting forward though interestingly i'm sure you're going here next was a peter mckay supporter during the leadership and was not in the initial shadow cabinet so not only that but he was the first sort of caucus rebel against Andrew Shear. He was someone who'd been on sort of, you'd expect in the Shear caucus that he would have been on the front bench and he actually declined a role in the Shear shadow cabinet and was basically the first agitator out, sort of ahead of everyone else um, against Shear's leadership. And then you're right, in the O'Toole shadow cabinet, uh, circa, I guess it's only three God. months ago. <laughs> time. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, when was that? Like October? No, like... it would have been September. It would have been September oh, just in time God. for the start of Parliament. It just feels like it was yesterday. Um, he, he didn't make it. And so that was really interesting uh, to note. But what's perhaps more interesting is that he's gone from zero, from not having a role at all, to be the number two as finance. Yes, as finance quite quite a leap. Yeah, no, he he went from bye bye honey to uh, to the the inner circle very quickly. So seemingly. I think, I mean, I think the main takeaway is that the the passions of leadership have cooled a little bit. Yes. <laughs> 
um, and that some of those grudges that were burning hot um, and some of the considerations of, oh, we can't appoint, maybe we can't appoint the guy who took down, uh, who agitated against Sheer when we're trying to keep the Sheer side of caucus and everyone happy and knitted together. Yeah. It was easier to leave him on the outside than to bring him in. Um, I All of that has obviously settled down, I think, some months later and now it's more pragmatic choices of who are our strong performers who is and it's worth saying who can we who can we use to lead us into the next election which is good and it's worth saying that leadership races are genuinely very um high emotion kind of of battles uh a lot of people uh it's quite intense because it's people who you know uh at a much more personal level and who you've worked with before in many cases and often, you know, are friends with and, and suddenly you're pitted on opposite sides of, of something and it can be quite intense and quite personal. Uh, and then it, that doesn't go. It just it just doesn't go away the day the, the leaders elected. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it, it obviously depends on the context, but these things take some time to kind of work themselves out. Uh, so it's worth saying that it, just to say that this is an entirely rational process. Uh, there, there are just some bruised egos that that have to get unbruised, and that takes some time. Uh, Poli- both politics is—it's a very—it's a people business. <laughs> it is a people business, but people forget a, that. Well, partisan politics is you spend so much time towing a line, yeah, and towing that line means not shit talking anyone really in your party, not shit talking the policy that you disagree with, really just towing that line no matter what happens. And leadership is basically the one time where everyone from the grassroots on up really feels empowered to speak their mind and shit talk people who were long considered sort of institutions of the party and talk about their record and try and cast aspersions on them in basically any way they can. And it gets bitter and it gets personal and it's no fun at all. Yes. Um, well, it can be kind of fun. Well, yeah, no, but I, it can create, <laughs> but no, yes, I take your point. or it can create divisions that sort of stand long after yes. um, the leadership itself. I don't think that this leadership race, um, it was, was not especially bitter. No, was especially bitter. Yeah. Uh, but there, it, it certainly has the potential and there certainly are passions because I mean, you know, anytime a leader is taken down, um, yeah see thomas mulcair as an example of bitterness post being removed from their position uh you know it it can leave some a bad taste in people's mouths yes and, uh, certainly and if, if, if those people then continue, yes and certainly if those people then uh lead the party as interim leader for several years that can also uh <laughs> yes perhaps something to to revisit another another time so, um but let's leave the shuffle there for a minute. And while we're on the CPC, yes. let, let me try and be, be slightly briefer on this. The conservative um, cinematic universe. Yes. Is I've been sort of theory crafting a little bit about the structure of the conservative party. Um, and, I'm the, um, and I'm centering this around Sloan and the decision to remove uh, Derek Sloan from caucus by caucus. Um, but ultimately when the decision was made and why the decision was made to remove him at the time he was removed and for the reasons he was That's another thing that's happened since we last recorded. It has, and we didn't cover it at length. I don't want to necessarily get into the details of that removal because it's sort of old news at this point. Yes. But the one sort of unique observation I want to bring to it is I'm in a camp, I think of reasonably few people, uh, not that I 
feel like it's wrong, but I feel like it should have more people in it. Uh, where I believe the Conservative Party is more robust than a lot of observers think it is, and a lot of party members think it is, uh, who are, you know, sensitive and recalling the days of yore when the Conservative Party was fragmented. Um, but I, I think the appetite for fragmentation is really low. But my my observation is that I think we're I think the Conservative Party works itself around fears of fragmentation a lot more than it needs to. And Derek Sloan is an example of this. The decision to keep Derek Sloan post leadership, uh, post taking the reins of leadership uh, by Aaron O'Toole, until such a point as Sloan made himself sufficiently politically toxic to be booted, um, at some cost to the party's popularity and appeal, no doubt, I think is a testament to those who think that the party is always on a razor's edge of, of falling apart if ever anyone acts against, act, or is perceived to act unfairly against uh, sort of different factions within the party. Obviously, the SOCONs being the faction we're talking about here. But even within the SOCONs, it's like a unique set of SOCONs, like the campaign for life coalition socons where i'm actually of the view that when you become conservative leader you actually have almost no matter what a more robust coalition i think evidence sort of bears that out over the years um, particularly post bernier uh, ppc post derek fildebrandt and others trying to split off the maverick party that's going to amount to nothing in my estimation i think conservative leaders spend a lot too much time on party unity relative to macro strategy that they spend way too much time trying to manage uh, perceived differences among the different camps of the conservative coalition rather than having the eye uh, on the main prize being the general election and sort of broader voter dynamics you know once you once you win leadership you have you have runway to play with and until you lose that election and you face leadership review you have potentially years with which to position yourself and to rebuild your coalition and to bring new members into the party. And you can create a reasonably robust apparatus with that. I think yeah. far too many people approach it as, I just really need to keep scotch tape in this thing together and, and, and to keep it going. I think, I think you're probably on the broad strokes correct. I think there's a generational thing here because if you think about it, uh, the Reform Party you know, formed, in, formed in the 80s. And uh, you had the, the various splits and mergers after that. And then the, the merger in 2003, four, um, three, I guess. And people who would have been, you know, in politics there, let's say even people who were, were getting, you know, you know, reasonably settled into politics. But let's say they were 25 years old when that happened in 2003. Those people are like over 40 now, or at least getting very close to it. I can't do math. Um uh, but all that to say that people under 40 have a very different memory of conservative politics than people over uh, that threshold of who were, you know, really had their political instincts set during a period when right wing unity was something that was desperately being forged rather than something that I think for younger people like you are is more taken for granted. So it's interesting. I think to some degree you're right. And I think to some degree conservatives have been a bit lucky in their uh, choice of rebels, or I suppose uh, so, not really their choice. But like if you look at Maxim Bernier, for instance, 
He's a guy who got like 49.99999% of the vote in his leadership race uh, and lost and presented what seemed to be at least a relatively cohesive libertarian ideological point of view. Um, and then sort of went nuts and <laughs> did this crazy like did he right go populist. Nuts or was he well, no, I mean, I look, I, I think Maxim Bernier had had a long track record of making sort of questionable political calls and uh, questionable judgment. But all that to say that like, if you're gonna have people split off, you want it to be the Maxim Berniers, you want it to be the Derek Sloans, you want it to be the Derek Fildebrands, um, instead of people who are even keeled and serious, right? Like in that sense, I think that it's, I think to some degree, a symptom of what you're describing in a successful way, and that those people aren't split. Like Peter McKay is aren't splitting off, right? And as much as I, I think we think Peter McKay is an overrated politician and a bit of a lightweight. He is someone who is at least perceived more seriously than I think Maxim Bernier has ever been. Um, and he didn't split off, you know? So in that sense, I think that's both a symptom of, of the success of what you're describing, but also I think a fragility in the sense that you could have someone more successful do it another time. And yeah. I guess time will tell on that. I, I don't think it's necessarily all that likely. Maybe, maybe uh, someone like but a, it is possible. a Scott Gilmore with a dinner party circuit, right? <laughs> yes, well, that's, a, that's uh, another good... <laughs> Yes, it, it's people really coming from outside the tent uh, no, but that are that are sort of seeing with, this as a more live possibility. No, but I just think the the incentives are such in politics that when a party forms and splits is like there is a strong centripetal force, incredibly, incredibly yes. unique instances. It's sort of yeah. like in the United States, you know, there there have been institutional momentum between the Democrats and the Republicans to such an extent forever. <laughs> Um, yeah, though slightly different there in that they basically have like the machinery of, of politics and ballot lines and all of that set up to really enforce a duopoly in a so, way legally sorry, wait, wait, that wait, is wait. not. What country are we talking about again? Yes, there is a lot more like legal enshrining of the duopoly than there is here. Sure. But my point yes. is, so you you made a good point about sort of generational memory and that obviously when i grew up i my political memory starts in the mid 2000s really um but when you look at the people several years before us they're scarred by four things really um they're scarred by the constitutional meach lake yeah in charlottetown meach lake in charlottetown and Anytime the Constitution is mentioned, oh, I can't they, do it. they gasp, they cover <laughs> yeah. their ears, they stick their yeah. head in the sand and say, never shall the Constitution be touched. You can't yes. do it. No one can do it. E every no columnist really shows their ass on this whenever a constitutional reform comes up because it, it's sort of framed as a total unthinkable impossibility. Yeah, it is pretty uh, striking. That's, that's one. Two is uh the debt and the state of the country's finances yeah the 94 the, through budget. the 90s yeah yeah that that's two the third is the one we've been discussing yeah a split and, conservative party and the fourth is personal animosity in the liberal party for the number one the Christian martin two. struggle yeah the Christian martin struggle the turner uh trudeau struggle this yeah. has existed in various iterations but sure. that one is the one that we have collectively as a society moved past um because no one is talking about any comparable struggle ever to have existed in the well uh, make of make what you will of the earlier iterations of the liberal party post uh martin um but certainly never in the trudeau 
uh, yeah. in the Trudeau party. It's it's just Not never way, been no. remotely a factor. There has never been an inkling of this discussion. Yes, and I think I, like because I think they've learned the lesson much as the conservatives have that like it is better to just shut up and go along, and that way you win. But that's sort of my point is that I yeah. think conservatives have learned the lesson, but still govern internally. As if these coalition elements are about to break off at any time. And when they have broken off, the seemingly big icebergs have turned out to be just absolute tiny slivers in the Max and Bernier's yes. world. Well, global warming is helping with that. So so when it comes to internal caucus management, my, my whole point in this is I think when a new leader is elected, like to use Andrew Scheer um, as an example, I think he spent a lot of time sort of fretting over these issues. Um, while basically doing nothing to change the party's direction to his detriment that the party yeah, though, I, I did, don't not know how much he... did not reform, it did not change its yeah. tone. It was not Stephen Harper with a smile. Um, it was Stephen Harper with a book club or with like with <laughs> procedural with Yeah. You know. I mean there there was the extent I think Andrew Shear ran the party he wanted to run. Like I don't think that there was a, a, a missed opportunity, something he would look back on and say, Ah, oh, I can't believe we, we didn't get to do XYZ, right? Like I, I don't know. Like I'm not in a conservative party. I don't have a, a, a you know a view into the cockpit there. I got the sense that Andrew Shear largely ran the party the way he wanted to run it. And and frankly the fact that he was the heavy caucus favorite uh, going into that leadership race, I think speaks to that, uh, that he was the continuity candidate in many ways, and that he ran it as a continuity with many of the same people, um, you know, both in caucus and uh, at the staff level, uh, I think speaks to that. But yeah, no, I, I see your point, though. So just just to sum it, because we spent 30 minutes on the Conservative Party, um, is to say that if I were to find myself in the shoes of the conservative leader, I would not hesitate to ruffle more feathers and to carve a newer, a new and different direction um, that I thought would bring more voices into the tent and maybe ruffle some feathers of longstanding constituencies. Um, what happens at convention be damned. Yes, I think the, the risk of, of convention is, is largely overrated uh, for, for everyone. Although, to, to mention this very quickly, digital convention, so conventions are always shit shows with, like, <laughs> tricks uh, where parties are trying to sort of moderate what gets voted on and passed and hates things and doesn't, doesn't include things in the book and all of the rest of this. Um, from the conventions I've been to, some of these games stem around, like, the fire capacity of rooms in which votes take place in and, like, getting people into those rooms early. Um, with conventions going digital this year, I think that'll be sort of interesting because I don't know how you do will... a lot of those same things. Yes. And like a lot of that on the ground organizing of like getting your people into places. Is well, literally the, very, in the lines at the mics. Yeah. Very, very different. Like when I was at the last CPC convention in uh, Halifax, the contentious social issue sort of questions that were getting and one of, one of the other ones that wasn't a social issue with that one was uh, supply management. Um, <laughs> those were ones which there was basically a bouncer at the door and a lineup because of fire code. So the, the hotel or the convention center was enforcing it. And the people that, you, you know, if you wanted to vote on it, you just couldn't get into the room and tough. That's how it goes, yeah. right? Uh, you can't do that in a Zoom room or whatever format is going to be used. For you know, I think pe I think people will be surprised by the the ways that are found. Just, to... There's going to be some innovation. There's going to be some <laughs> yes. innovation. In there will the, be a uh... lot of innovation. Yes. Oh, the the internet has been cut off to that speaker. Uh, moving on. 
Yes. Um, um, Green Party. Green, Green Party, Green, yeah. Green Party, well, Green while Party. we're doing a tour of the, the, the hopeless political project. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, so Annamie Paul today has uh, announced her intention to run yet again in the riding of Toronto Guelph, Centre. In Guelph, right? The the riding that is <laughs> that most they likely in Ontario yep. to represent victory for her. Uh, nope, it's going to be Toronto Centre again. Uh, <laughs> I've I've heard some people sound bullish about this, and I'm a little surprised. I, I, I granted, and I will say this right up front, she definitely exceeded my expectations in the by-election. But I think, let's remember, it's a by-election <laughs> during a pandemic with like the stakes could not be lower and like yeah it's just i think anyone reading a lot into that result is what i say about deluding themselves always is never read the tea leaves on by-elections parties always want you to read the tea leaves on by-elections and they're used as an example well going into them um they're used an example of momentum but they're largely about very unique circumstances uh parties are able to <clears throat> put much more attention into them than they otherwise yes. would much more resources it, it, yes i i would say that there's a, there's an inverse bell curve at work with really 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 low turnout by elections which is that the people with the highest propensity to vote are on the one hand super highly motivated partisans uh and people who are just like very strong supporters of, of a given political party and on the other side, the craziest voters in the riding who, like, just like voting because it's it's fun for them and, like, don't necessarily have any, either have a stunningly incoherent set of political views or a frighteningly coherent set of political views. Um, so in that, it's, it's not your typical electorate, is what I'm saying. Yeah, the marginal voter... Who is likely to vote the same way they've always voted in that riding, which is to say liberal, um, are not the people who are turning out to buy elections. Yeah. It is Unless the, they're the hardcore. Yeah. The eccentrics, the partisans, the the people who Friends are and family of the candidates. by the narrative being told about that. By, so yeah. I think the odds in Toronto Center are not impossible. I think they're not great. And there are at least... 10 other ridings in Canada um, in which she would have better yes. odds. And let's talk about two of them. Uh, you mentioned Guelph, uh, which is the, the seat that uh, Green Party of Ontario leader Mike Schreiner, who we once and, interviewed on and this friend very program. Of the pod. No, you once and... <laughs> interviewed, and I believe you got absolutely owned. Yeah, it was actually very, he was very good. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, who's been interviewed on this program at any rate? Uh, yes, Laurent. That's it, a good question. Let me tell you about our green, uh, our green. Yes, the green. It was really. Instead. It was. It was quite skillful. He did a. <laughs> I. I would not be so easily bamboozled now, uh, being much more seasoned. But yes, no, he did a great job. So hats off to Mike Schreiner. Um, so a, a seat where you know the the really the dynamics are in their favor in a way that they are not in Toronto Center. Uh, the other writing I wanted to bring up is a certain Sanage Gulf, Gulf Islands. Islands. I was hoping uh, that's where you're going. Yes. Uh, in many parties, it's considered the done thing to make some space for the leader, um, if, if you can. That does not seem to be the convention of, uh, of one Elizabeth May, uh, <laughs> who seems to think that her being the, the regnant pope of Sanage Gulf Islands far 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 outstrips the importance of the green party having a leader in parliament uh and let me tell you 
from from bitter personal experience, having a leader in parliament is is good. You want it. It's it's definitely a plus. <laughs> um, so yeah, not uh, not her wisest call, I think. So let, let me look at my crystal ball here and let me play forecaster for a moment. What kind Henry of crystal Paul are you using? Because that's very important. Loses Toronto Center in the let's call it June twenty twenty one election. Um, then what? Her options are to stay party leader. Um, I don't know if she's drawing a salary from the Greens. I have no idea. Uh, I've never looked into that. But if she is, Neither she's draining party resources. If she isn't, uh, she's draining her savings. I, I hope she has her own independent financial wealth because being a party leader paid for four years is uh, difficult. Yes. Uh, so... Then her options are to, one, I guess she hopes it's a minority government and there is an election again in one to two, three years, maybe. Um, But that sucks. And then it's to throw her hand or throw her hat in the ring for every by-election that comes up. And the odds of by-elections coming up in the, call it 10 ridings that are winnable if the Greens don't gerrymander something for her by having a Green MP resign their seat, as is sort of the conventions that you're referring to, uh, is incredibly low. And if she does, she runs in Outremont or wherever and loses, and then runs somewhere else and loses. She's just a leader who presently has two losses under her belt, um, and is not going to be in Parliament, is going to be spending the party's resources, running at long-shot seats, is not going to be in Ottawa, um, being in Ottawa without a seat in Parliament is something you can swing for a limited period of time, as I think uh, the NDP have learned. It becomes very taxing if you're not in Parliament in terms of getting media attention and staying relevant. Yeah. Uh, well, and just like question period time is so important, and granted the Greens don't have a lot of it, uh, but still, you know. But if the Greens get more of it and she's not in Parliament, even worse, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, effectively. She, yeah. And she has to rent a place in Ottawa as well and be there for scrums on the hill and just all of these things that are just so inconvenient and do not make any sense at all over any type of extended period if you're not a leader in parliament, if, if you don't have a seat in parliament. Uh, it's like yeah. sort of, what are you doing in the building all day, really? You're borrowing someone's offices to take meetings in. Cool. Um, it just doesn't work. Um, no. It, yes. All that to say that uh, we think that this, this is ill-advised and she should Elizabeth May should probably just retire. <laughs> the joke, yeah, the joke I made on Twitter is that, you know, climate change is the existential issue facing humanity with the exception of MPs parachute or uh, candidates parachuting into ridings. Like, yes, that's I far think, worse. I think the Greens need a dose of political realism to say, if we are going to be influential in politics, yes. we need to actually do politics rather than pretending that we're, we're post-partisan and we're above it all. Um, because it sucks. It's it's a path. yeah, and I mean, like, I, Eliz- Elizabeth yeah. May herself went after all sorts of long shot runs, most notably against um, Peter McKay in Central yeah. Nova. Um, and and maybe it helped build her profile a little bit, but overall, I think it stunted her. Um, had she just gone and gone and found a riding and worked that riding, perhaps she could have been in Parliament earlier. And been yeah. a more significant voice earlier in terms of the green movement. Yeah, and to her, to her credit, she did knock off a conservative cabinet <laughs> minister in Sandwich Bowl Islands. Like it wasn't it wasn't a nothing riding, it wasn't a given. Uh, but one thing I, I do 
think is worth noting with the Green Party is you say they can give you a shot of realism about this. And, like, the reality with the Green Party is that it's fundamentally a... And I won't say this about the entire party, but I think there is a, a strong current in it that is fundamentally anti-political. Uh, like, the whole conceit of what they ran on last time being... You know, to address what they believe, and I quite correctly, to be the defining challenge of, of humanity and climate change, was that they needed an all-party cabinet. And it's like, well, okay, but at the time, you know, that, like, what are you going to do if Andrew Scheer is in your, your, you know, climate change war cabinet and he doesn't want to do anything about climate change? And it's like, well, what's the point, you know? <laughs> like, you, at some point, like, you have to do politics. Like, you have to put forward a vision there's and sort of there a are going to be people of, opposed. If, if we bring everyone around the table, we'll simply be able to convince everyone and find a consensus. Yes, and that's what that I mean. That's that, what we believe yes. in. That is fundamentally uh, we'll, we'll an anti-political position. We'll be able to get everyone position. to our perspective. Yes. And so the path that we will all mutually agree on, it's actually yes. sort of... <sighs> it's anti-political, right? In, in a very fundamental way. It's that it's that you don't actually... It's, it's not it's, about... It's not conflicting interests. It's about it's people just being mean and nasty. Though, right? It is juvenile, it's, absolutely. Yes. It's let's get everyone around the table and they will all come to my position. No, if you get yes. everyone around the table... They're going to come to a position that is absolutely not even remotely close to the Greens. Because yes. the Greens aren't the consensus position. But we have the evidence of this. It's Why called would you every think election. It's a consensus position. <laughs> yes. So, all that to say that, uh, yes, the sort of juvenile anti politics of the Green Party, I think, are a big detriment for them, and they would be best served to abandon them. But on the other hand, I would say Greens keep right on ahead. Do everything. We're, we're mean and nasty. We're wrong. Uh, and it, you guys just keep doing what you're doing forever, please. We love it. <laughs> We admire you so much. Please keep doing it. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost interesting. The the NDP struggle with like the idea. Also, never do, also if you're running for the Green Party, if you're running for the Green Party, don't delete any of your social media posts. Just keep <laughs> them all up. They're just a tribute to how brave you are. The NDP and themselves have struggled with like ideologues versus pragmatism in terms of you know which this... positions the NDP should take on issues. Yes, but the Greens are the party who live it the most in terms of <laughs> being all ideologues. And yes. like I'm sure there is a pragmatic wing to the party, but it's not really represented by those in Parliament and those whose voices you hear when they're speaking. It's interesting. Um, this is a, a conflict as old as Green Parties, in fact, because the German Green Party has had two wings called the Fundis and the Realos uh, <laughs> since the 1970s. And I think you can imagine which one is which. Uh, but yes, it is uh, It is very funny. And uh, yeah, we love to see it. Keep, keep right on ahead, Greens. Like, keep doing what you're doing. All right, let's let's leave the, uh, the Greens misadventures there. No, they're um, doing good. They're doing great. Keep doing it. So uh, yeah, I want to talk really briefly actually about the the other opposition party that uh, is is not the NDP, um, which is the Bloc, and uh, really yes. really briefly because it's not something we hear about in uh, Anglo media a lot. But uh, Yves François Blanchet uh, really impressed people in the last election uh, because he was very good at being on TV. It's kind of turned out that being on TV is like the only skill at. he actually has. And and respect to him, because in a sense, he, he's like a poster. He has the really the soul of a poster in the sense that, like, he seems to think his job is to, like, make cutting remarks and sound clever. Uh, and if you watch a press conference, and I highly recommend people do this, is watch a press conference with him and watch him just, like, be really sarcastic with journalists. Uh, <laughs> I remember there was one, I believe it was last summer... <laughs> where he was taking some questions in English 
and he just he responded with like you should visit Quebec. It's a nice place. <laughs> like just being just really, really like overtly, insultingly sarcastic. And it's just like, boy, does that not work? Like it works if your job is to be on TV and sound clever. But like if you're like the representative and leader of a political party that like ostensibly like has goals like it's just and you know like the sort of like mantra in politics is message discipline and you know if you're if you're hearing it for the millionth time as the person saying it the person hearing it is hearing it for the first this guy is just he's like us he's just out there just like shooting left and right on whatever he's thinking of that day just like it's honestly it's fun to watch but like man i i just bring it up because it is so unlike anything i've ever seen but and but it is like so us. not covered in english media and i just highly recommend checking it out but unlike us, it's the best show in town. No one listens to his press conferences. Like that's the thing, right? Is when you're the leader of the third party, well, maybe the fourth. Often, if if you're going live, depending on the situation, if you're going live on TV, typically cable news is carrying the liberals and then the conservatives, and maybe the NDP. You guys get short shrifted a fair bit. <clears throat> The Bloc Québécois press conference is absolutely not getting carried on. Well, it is, it is in, in Quebec media. In Quebec media, yes. Which is where it matters, because that's if, where they run candidates. Well, uh, yes, but a lot, of, a lot of his quippiness is in English as well. or too Yeah, English well, like media. I said, it's he's nice. <laughs> and, like, he's not ingratiating himself. His comments are not being carried by yeah. media because they're sassy little quips instead, right? Like, no yeah. journalist is like, oh, let me write... Let me write my article and then write like Blanchette said. I should. I'm a dumbass and I should visit uh, Quebec sometime. Like, yeah. no, it just gets you cut out of the story entirely. Like, well, that's what I'm saying is that it, it is. That's what I'm saying is that it is a remarkably self-destructive and counterproductive approach, and it is just really funny to watch someone do it so consistently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, all I have to say, it's really good. You guys really should check it out. Highly recommend. So in the. When, when the block came into Parliament, uh, what is it, the 41st session of Parliament? No, 42nd the, the session 41st, of The 41st Parliament was the 2011 Parliament. The 42nd Parliament is the 2015 Parliament. Okay, and the 43rd, 43rd is the current Parliament one. then. Yes. Um, when they came into the 43rd Parliament, um, which is when they re- substantively... Yeah, well, the first time they had party status in a decade. Yes. Yeah. Um, what we heard, I think, was that once upon a time, the block in parliamentary terms were a force to be reckoned with. They had a lot of, like, established staff who knew the ins and outs of parliaments very well. And one of the big questions was, where is that staff now? Like, they've yeah. gone to the winds. They've been scattered to the winds by a prolonged absence. There's virtually no one there. There's a fresh batch of MPs. How are the block going to do in terms of rebuilding themselves? Um, in terms of being opposition you know, effective opposition. And I don't think we've seen any evidence of the block being effective opposition. Watching them yeah, I tend in to agree. committee, they seem to be all over the place. Yep. Um, all over the place is exactly how we Sometimes they are very adversarial it. to the government and sometimes they're yeah. go along to get along. It really seems like however they're feeling on a given day and there's no sort of rhyme or reason to it. Um, they're really the wild card and I don't have sort of a, a macro analysis of how they're doing except for like random number generator. No, and I, I think that that's about right. I think they don't really... Yeah, it, it is all over the map and very wild cardy, exactly. But yeah, we'll see how they do next election. I'm genuinely curious because I, I, 
I think Blanchet's tenure has been less impressive than I think many people would have assumed uh, from the last election. So we'll see. That takes us to the HESA documents. This has yes. been um, something we've talked about in the past, so I won't go into full detail about the history of the HESA documents. Um, aside from saying HESA being the health committee, these the are Commons. the thousands upon thousands of documents that the health committee, um, led by sort of unanimous opposition, voted to extract from the liberal government. Um, the most unique... I, by way of small correction, it was the House that voted and not the committee. Or, Sorry, yes, you're correct. Yes. Of course, it requires a full vote of the House of Commons to have that type of authority on such a contentious issue. No, no, no. Uh, the committees can do it. It was just done via opposition day motion. Fine. The weed docs were done at committee, well, for instance. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, fine. <laughs> fine. Um, so, we are in the process of slow trickle it seems to be on friday nights or at least it has yeah been friday, on friday nights, nights. That's the best time when everyone wants to be reading hessa documents yes. um that friday nights there have been document dumps of about a thousand documents the past two weeks um from all the different departments named in it um of varying degrees this last one had a lot from pspc uh, there have been several stories that have come out of the the documents. Not as many as I think I would yeah, have expected. Nothing earth shaking so far. Yeah, nothing nothing earth shaking so far. The most interesting documents seem to have been uh, one of the internal audits that was started by uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada, PHAC, of itself. Um, yes. An audit that they had referred to previously as being underway when there was questions about you know, we should do a review of PHAC. And they said, well, don't do a review of our COVID response while it's underway, but we're doing sort of an internal audit of the process. That document was interesting because it was surprisingly candid about some of the issues at PHAC. One of the, st and there, there was actually a, I don't often love Hill Times columns because I find sometimes their, their lineup includes a lot of kooky people um but in this case it's actually a really good piece i can't even remember the author um but it was about nice. phack <laughs> and health canada and the history of the dynamic there a little bit and about phack has effectively become sort of health canada light and populated by sort of generalist uh bureaucrats and one of the facts that the author of this piece picked up on that was in the audit and i think we picked up on it as well is talking about the amount of senior management at PHAC who are credentialed as doctors rather than as lifelong civil servants. Mm -hmm. Because that being seemingly important when you have a public health agency that's you know, responding to the challenge of a lifetime. Um, and it compares that to 60% at CDC. Yes. To, and to uh, clarify, we being, don't know what the figure is at, at PHAC. Being uh, the American yes, counterpart, they, they said it's lower, it lower than the CDC. The yeah. figure at PHAC, which I find a rather striking omission, as it says, like almost literally, like by comparison, CDC is this, but it is low at PHAC. And it's like, yeah. why would you not put the number in this internal document? Star startling to me but this is some of the type of information we're getting there were other stories that came out in relation to uh minnow emails and things like that honestly a few of them have made stories and have been used in conservative and other sort of political yeah. messaging 
Um, but there's been nothing, as you said, earth-shattering so far. I think we have about 2,000, I want to say of 30,000 or so documents, I think is the number I heard, but I can't source that anywhere right now. Yeah, we were um, thinking about this before we started recording, and neither of us could remember where that denominator came from. What's, what's interesting about the documents is, or the, sort of the state of play right now, we mentioned before that they're sort of held up in translation. Can I just say the absolute <laughs> troops on the hill are the translators? Yeah. I don't know what kind of translations facilities these guys have, but uh, they just got finished work. translating 800 pre-budgetary submissions from every organization imaginable. And now they have 30,000, basically just random emails, pages, 30,000 documents. So that's pages and pages of uh, files. Most of them are mo- uh, having A few, between virtually all of them. Pages. The vast majority are one or two. Yeah. And mostly one. Are sort of email threads. We'll, we'll see how it develops. Who knows? Maybe yeah. that's what they're sorting for. I mean, the, the quick stuff, like, I think like, they may be getting it out of the way. Absolutely, yes. I think that's very likely, actually. But, yeah. Uh, but these are people who are having to translate, like, conversational documents that people might not ever read in French um, or yeah. whatever, French or English, because... They're literally being dumped in the thousands, and someone's job for basically eight months is going to be translating thousands of inane emails. Uh, amongst which, there will be good ones, but largely yes. inane emails. I actually do want to point to one uh, that I found you really interesting. You picked one in the batch to present to us. I picked one in the batch because it, it was very interesting tell. because it was... From is very this, is early... this the grandmother writing about sewing masks? No, 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 that was really funny though. The the quilting the quilting group in Kamloops, yeah, that was good. Laura. Uh, I know that I, I don't know what the, <laughs> the staffer's name was. I'm just picking one out of the hat. It was very uh, your funny. mother gave me your email and she said that maybe you'd be interested in our quilted masks that me and <laughs> yes. my quilting group are putting together. We have many experienced seamstresses. Hey, you know, I think that's actually really that that was actually a little heartwarming to be honest. It was very nice to see. Uh no, but it this was uh it was from uh liberal MP uh, Marcus Pavlovsky who is from ah, uh, Thunder one. Bay Rainy River. Yes. And this is actually from March. Uh, and it was such an interesting quote to me because it was about PPE procurement, but I think it speaks so perfectly to every single step that the federal government has taken that if I were to write a book about the federal government's handling of COVID, I would put this as the epigraph because to me it is so, <laughs> so perfect. And l- let me just read this quote. I, and I think a lot of people, would have more faith in our ability to do this quickly and effectively if we know there is a transparent process as to how we are doing things. As I have said, it is hard now to accept reassurances that we are prepared, that we are doing all of the right things, when we can never, ever get any specifics as to what we are doing and how we are doing it. And if you, like, literally evergreen for the last year, you you could apply that, you could apply that to anything, PPE, Rapid tests, vaccines, uh, different shutdown measures, like anything, anything. And it just works. And to me, it was just, it floored me by how perfect it was in encapsulating everything about how the government's managed this one week in. I think like I've seen he those... na- and to, to Marcus Pavlovsky, if if you listen to the podcast, hats off, man! Like you, I've, you I've never really heard of this nailed it before. I'll be honest with you. Yes, you nailed it. So, but, it but it rings uh, a bell. Am I right? 
Yeah, he is a doctor, actually, which is interesting, because I think uh, he he was, uh, like, you could really tell from the tenor of the email that he was quite frustrated <laughs> by how things were going, so, yes. Laurent missed my Rings of Bell reference, but I'll let that slide. Sorry, I, I'm, I didn't even hear it. What did you say? Well, I said it Rings a Bell, because his name is Pavlovsky. Oh, it's spelled differently. I don't care how it's spelled. It's the Polish version. I don't so. care how it's spelled. Yeah, no, I, I do know that. <laughs> Uh, but yes, all that to say, incredible stuff, and like I said, it's just, it's so perfect. I and, think I've uh, seen that it. quoted in social media ads by the Conservative Party now. Um, I think they Really? Pushed, yep, 100%. Oh. I think I saw those huh. earlier Interesting. Being, hmm. Actually, do I have it open on my Facebook right now? I do not, but I believe I have. Okay, well, so send me that if you see it, because I, I am interested in, in seeing well, that. Because there it, is a Facebook ads tracker thing that you That's can true, pull isn't up there? to see all yeah, the ads that are about being that. run by a political party um, at any given time. So, so make, if there's one that tool. If there's one other thing I think we have to end on a, a somber note here, it's uh, the, the, the crimes perpetrated against our beloved Space Queen. <laughs> Oof. Oof, oof, oof. So, can I say, I'm going to be very, this is a very unpopular opinion. Let me just break from the space bit for a moment (laughs) to say, if you take a minute to think about what astronauts are good at, astronauts are physically fit nerds. Not getting space madness. They're physically fit nerds who are trained to basically troubleshoot electronics and zero gravity i don't know I would anything a- about i would actually that's... add would i would add, add one important skill set to that which is not getting space madness and i i don't even mean that facetiously i mean it is the ability to function on an incredibly even emotional keel for a long and stressful time sure one yeah 100 yes. agreed that that seems to not have happened here i would say a vacuum <laughs> yes um, you want people who are just flat you know no highs no lows a mark garneau kind of figure you know like very much so yeah yes that does not seem to have been the case here unfortunately a mark garneau who can solder upside down um while floating through the iss pretty good stuff tell me which of those skills apply to the role of museum administrator or governor general of canada uh the not going nuts one (laughs) 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 the not like berating people over like minor inconveniences and irritances i think is is one that would have come in handy that's that's one of three i'll I'll grant you the one of three being the physically fit zero gravity enabled nerd um does not nor does the electronics handling skills there's a real question in my mind just sort of how we treat astronauts as people who have like we want to elevate to the peaks of our society even though their skill set is incredibly niche uh that after they get back from the moon they have sort of exhausted their career path and have nowhere to go and then it's like well this person's done something really cool um so let's put them in charge of something completely unrelated but to an extent, it's sort of as if we gave, like, I don't know, like, Everest climbers, like, museums to run or departments or made, like, Sir Edmund Hillary the deputy minister of Treasury Board or, I don't know, deep sea divers in charge of 
something in government and it's like these skill sets have absolutely zero alignment why i mean why are we trying to make them fit just because we all think space is cool i do and can think i say one more thing about astronauts i do think you're being we a are the last generation which will glorify like which will have astronauts as administrators because as going to space is about to become very mainstream like billionaires are going to be the next ones in space and then it's going to be like run-of-the-mill schmucks who have too much money yes and so like uh, we're, we're almost out from under this plague of astronauts as like as government officials and boy am i looking forward to that really unpopular opinion <laughs> <laughs> i don't know you if know who sucks astronauts anti-astronaut they do very the cool astronaut things. free ride is at an end <laughs> they do very cool things in space i'm just saying post space we really have to reconsider how we're leveraging their talents I would say that you're doing a little bit of a disservice to the astronaut skill set in general because there is a lot of administration involved in being an astronaut. Um, but all that to say, uh, in this case at least, there has been something of a... Uh, Laurent in favor of big astronaut, eh? Oh, astronauts are cool, man. I, I'm totally in favor of astronauts. Um, yeah, all that to say, I think in this case, definitely a bit of a misfire. Um, so... I, I just space queen. more extreme snowboarders as government administrators. Like I this. think that would be I think that would be tubular and radical. I, I see these as equally like plausible <laughs> in terms Jesus. of why not? Why? It, all that to say, it's not cool to uh, be incredibly abusive to subordinates. <laughs> Please do not do that. <laughs> yeah, that's why. <laughs> the space yeah. queen bit was going really good. It for was a, a very funny bit, time. and then it's yeah, just yeah, uh, it's, sort it's of like. Up. It's actually not very funny. Yeah, it's uh... well, yeah, like really horrible. And never appoint your friend to be your deputy minister or in a deputy minister comparable position. Like in- unless they're running the government off their cell phone. That was that was the very first red flag among among many. Yes. Um, we haven't talked vaccinations, um, but we don't have time to talk vaccinations. No, and I think I think like right now uh, we are in a bit of a, a pivotal period where the government seems very confident that things are about to turn the corner, uh, and the opposition seems to be less convinced by that. Uh, so we will see how that develops over the next uh, couple of weeks. The only thing I would point to is that uh, back in October, we talked a lot about rapid tests and how they could be very good. And I think we both still think that they can be very good. Nova Scotia has been using them very effectively. However, I do feel a little hard done by uh, by some of the provincial premiers who were very adamant that uh, the government should be getting them rapid tests by approving them and sending them to the provinces, etc. And we thought that was that was a splendid idea and they should, in fact, do that. The federal government has now done that, and the provinces seem to be uh, now totally uninterested in rapid tests now that they can't be used to beat the federal government over the head with anymore. Uh, so in that sense, uh, minus points for Jason Kenney and Doug Ford and Brian Pallister. Uh, I'm very annoyed by this because it was an opportunity to do something good and constructive and different in public policy, and uh, they basically just didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, so very annoyed. The the way I sum it up is two thirds of the pandemic was the provinces beating the feds over the head with rapid tests. Why aren't they here yet? Yes. And then the la- and the feds were saying, oh, rapid tests aren't that important. And now this <laughs> flipped. The rapid yes. tests are approved. There are some notable quantities of them in the country. And the feds are saying, look at these shiny rapid tests we have. They're so nice and they're so good. And why aren't we using them? And the provinces are saying. Oh, they're not that important. PCR tests are fine. 
Uh, which sucks because yes, neither it's very was, annoying. Neither neither position was correct by neither government. Um, so that's tough. Yes. What I would add. Oh, were you gonna say something? Oh, I was just yeah. I mean, my my whole sort of thesis of the last couple months have been that since vaccines were approved, I get the sense that every government has basically given up on anything but just riding out the vaccination train. Which, like, obviously I think the vaccines will solve a lot of the problems in the sense that they will dramatically reduce transmission, etc. But, like, it's also not the only thing you can do. And it really seems like governments across the country have, have given up on doing anything but just getting people vaccinated. And even then, there are a lot of worrying indicators that uh, rollout is not going to be smooth once uh, vaccine uh, scarcity turns into vaccine abundance. So one, my, I'll, I'll make this my, my closing comment on vaccines is I understand fundamentally where the government is coming from. The government is talking to their suppliers and their suppliers are saying, oh, we have hiccups in our supply chain right now. We're retrofitting this facility. You know, we'll get it all sorted out on the back end. And they're getting verbal promises over the phone and they're turning those around and they're reselling those to the Canadian population as sort of good enough. Saying, you know, we're, we're talking, we have reassurances, we're confident that everyone's going to keep their word and everything's going to be okay. The challenge with that is when the opposition starts picking at it and says, where's the proof that everything's going to be okay? It puts it's a proof is a proof! It puts them in a very hard position, right? rightfully so. And they don't have very much they can do except to continue to reiterate, like, you know, we're just confident that the people we talk to said good things and we're just really hoping that everything pans out in the end yes and, and, and that's it, really the position they're in because the contracts are all signed and dated to eight months ago they feel like there's not much more they can do except just wait for things to be delivered yes um but there i think there is an increasing body of evidence that the company or the countries that put their elbows up and fight for things um be it not being cut out of Pfizer uh, vaccinations because of retrofits of facilities or what have you, are the, are the countries that are doing better. The, the unique situation around vaccines, and I think this is like an all-time historical unique situation where you have basically every country in the world fighting over a zero-sum resource. And it's entirely sort of a winner-take-all situation. Well, not a winner-take-all, but a... A zero sum situation where there's yeah. a ton of scarcity and every vaccine that goes to one country is not going to another country. And so you have to be willing to negotiate incredibly hard if you're going to be um, at the top end of the vaccination chart. And the country that yeah. was willing to negotiate the hardest was Israel. Um, and then it sort of goes down the line from there. And it seems like Canada was not willing to negotiate or to pay as much as we were interested in hedging our bets on a number of vaccination candidates. Yes, and I can totally see a universe which, which where a that approach, strategy is the one that looks really one smart. Half of it. Yeah, no, but even then, like if things had just turned out differently, right? Like if, for instance, the countries that signed huge deals with Pfizer and Moderna, but none with Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca, yeah. and then those two were the first two approved instead of Pfizer and Moderna. Like, we look pretty smart. Like, we look pretty smart kind of no matter what happens. Uh, or pretty dumb, depending on how much we're actually getting. But other countries could be left entirely out. So it is just, like, 
you know, there's some contingency, and I, I look like we, this we wasn't did, easy, and like we're we're just guys with a podcast. Like at the end of the we, day, we did the ETF strategy. Israel yeah. did the GameStop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like there, there's a universe where that could have gone horrifically for them, right? Like it did work out, but it was definitely like more of a high risk strategy than Canada did it. So all that to say, like I, I certainly. I uh, don't think things are going as, as well as they could be, but uh, it, I think it is important to zoom out a little bit to the imperfect information of six months ago. Uh, however, to, to end on the words of a very wise man, it is hard to accept reassurances that we are prepared <laughs> when we can never, ever get any specifics as to what we're doing and how we are doing it. Well, with that, Mark, I, will, I will close what, the boys' Pav- short pants Pavlovsky? storybook. Pavlovsky, yes. Pav- Pavlovsky, you see, the, the contracts are all very secret, and if we yes. told you anything, we'd be violating the contracts we signed, even though we have the secretest contracts in the world, and other countries' contracts aren't as secret as ours. Ours are very secret. Yes. Um, so there you go. At some that. point, it becomes hard to believe you, and you've been using kind of the same excuse for everything for over a year, so... Everything is very secret, and we can't tell you anything. And, yes. uh, but, but but rest assured that we are right and you are wrong. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone, once again for listening to our humble podcast. Um, Jan, did you did you have a beverage you were enjoying this time? Uh, yes, I uh, happened to stumble upon some Jersey Ciel um, in my cellar, so I have a rigor mortis. Jersey um, Ciel is a brewery based out of Montreal. Um, they're sort of a long-standing brewery, one of the earlier microbreweries in the Quebec scene that I'm aware of, and everything they do is absolutely phenomenal, it's very reasonably priced, um, and I love it. And this yes. one is from a port cask. It is a uh, Abbey-style brown ale, and it was there phenomenal. That does sound nice. They made one of my favorite stouts in the world. They do. Yes, the uh, um, God, I can't remember the name now. Patient Mortel. Yes. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let it go. Uh, yeah, and yes, <laughs> is that that your issue? I forgot that the accent yeah. goo on the yes. second. Yeah, I got. That's you. Exactly I actually it. had a dream about that beer last uh, night. So here we are. That's really weird. Um, there are a brewery on. Uh, I think it's on Marie in Montreal. Is very very pleasant to visit as well. Oh, I it's recommend. a great. It's a great yeah. spot. I, I go every time I'm in Montreal. One hundred percent. Yeah, uh, I had one too. It was from Fairweather, but I don't have a can in front of me, and I don't remember the name. So I'll uh, I'll have to just take my word for it that Fairweather in Hamilton, their beers are, are good. Yes, and they Ontario. now deliver throughout uh, Ontario. One yes. of the perks of the pandemic was pushing microbreweries to deliver. And uh, yes. because before the pandemic, it was almost impossible to get fair weather. In Speaking of deliveries of things, I, I, I didn't have one tonight, but I want to give a shout out to uh, my homies. Not really my homies. I don't know them at all, but I have been uh, enjoying their products for much of the last year. At Revel Cidery, uh, Revel Cider, I guess, uh, somewhere in Ontario uh, that does absolutely phenomenal stuff. Uh, wines and ciders highly recommend checking it out uh some of the best stuff i've had in the last year so very delicious are we just shouting out random things i don't um, know it's just a while i didn't really have like the beer on hand to recommend so. now or something i don't know just, they're good i think they're i think they're very nice uh anyway that'll do it for the boys and show pants this week apologies for the slightly long episode but uh we're, we're catching I have up a little very bit very nice curtains from ikea that Ooh. Like Ooh, very good <laughs> the, the meatballs are to die for uh yes that will do it for the boys and show pants this week thank you once again as always for listening Bye bye